we come together every, every Lord's Day to feed on manna, to feed on God's Word. So let's turn in God's Word to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans 12, verses 1 through 8 will be our text this morning. <clears throat> Let's hear God's word to us this day. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Whereas in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Isn't it striking that Paul begins this address to believers with an appeal? The apostle could have commanded us, couldn't he? I mean, he has the authority of an apostle. He could have have said, I command you to do this, and it would have been quite within his rights. But he says, I appeal to you. I implore you. I beg you. It's the word he uses that's used for begging in Greek. I beg you. The great Apostle Paul begs you to listen to him. He implores you not, not for his sake. He's coming alongside you as a brother. Did you catch that? He's not saying, I, the apostle, I'm telling you to do this. He said, he's saying, brother, sister, he's putting his arm around your shoulders. I implore you to hear what I'm saying right now. Because it is to your eternal good. I appeal to you. That's really what preaching is, isn't it? I have no right in and of myself to command you, but I can appeal to you using Paul's words of appeal. Do you hear? Do you hear the apostles' concern for you as God's people? 
he's writing to people, most of whom he hasn't met. He knows some people in that church, but most of these people he doesn't know. But, but he knows that he has a spiritual relationship with them, and so he's appealing to them. He's appealing to you through this word. We might say, of course, very truthfully, that Christ himself is appealing to you here. Your Lord and Savior is imploring you to hear his word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Paul has spent 11 chapters, the majority of this book, presenting the mercies of God. The mercies of God towards sinners like you. How wonderful those mercies are. The more of a sinner you know yourself to be, the more rich, the more deep, the more incredible his mercies are, aren't they? I'm appealing to you, he's saying, I'm imploring you on the basis of the mercies of God that he has extended to you. Can you turn a deaf ear to this? How can you not listen after I've unfolded for you the mercies of God in Jesus Christ? All that he's done to make atonement for your sins, offer himself a sacrifice so that you might be saved. I'm appealing to you on the basis of the mercies of God. Will you not hear How can we not? How, how can we turn aside? How can we turn a deaf ear to the Lord here? As he appeals to us on the basis of his mercies toward us. Well, now to the appeal. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present, to offer the word here. Uh, it literally means to stand before, to come into someone's presence, to offer a sacrifice. We read in our call to worship, reference to the Old Testament sacrifices, where the priest would come into the temple and offer sacrifices. And so Paul is saying, you stand in that tradition of God's people, who are to come before him. Remember we looked a couple of Sundays ago at the fact that you as a church are a kingdom and priest, so you as priest have an offering to present to God. And Paul is imploring you on the basis of the mercies of God to bring that offering to him, bring that sacrifice. And it is a sacrifice. It's costly. David said on one occasion, you remember, I will not offer to God something that does not cost me anything. You're called to offer a costly sacrifice. 
And that sacrifice is your own bodies. Now, it seems like strange language, doesn't it? Why doesn't Paul just say yourselves? Why does he say your bodies? Well, I think he's emphasizing the very real nature of this offering. He's also standing squarely in the theology of the scripture about you as a person, that you are an embodied being. You are not a spirit who happens to be inhabiting this physical body, okay? You're, you're not some being that's going to be reincarnated into some other body, okay? Scripture says you are created a living, breathing, physical being. This means, of course, by the way, your body is important. Okay? And you should treat your body as if it's important. And others need to treat your body with respect as well. That's going in a different direction, but I want to underscore the very physical, real nature of the offering that you're called to make. You're going to, you're going to offer this offering with your body, with what you say, with what you do, where you go, how you spend your time. You interact in this real world through your body, right? So he's saying, offer as a sacrifice your body. God wants all of you. All of you, not a part. Paul gives uh, three adjectives modifying this sacrifice you're to make. First, it's living. Living. Now, of course, the sacrifice in the Old Testament was killed. Blood was shed on that altar. But the sacrifice you make as a priest to God today is a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of your life, in other words. You're giving all of you, and that includes all of you over time. You're giving yourself body and soul, body and mind, body and spirit. You're giving yourself to God for all of your life. It is a living sacrifice. God is not pleased with dead sacrifices, dead good works, dead hypocritical worship. God doesn't need your good works, of course. He doesn't need your worship either, does he? He needs nothing from you. He is the triune God, perfectly happy, perfectly at pleasure in and of himself. He does not need anything you can give to him. But he wants you. He wants you. Isn't that incredible? The God of the universe, who needs nothing, no one can give him anything, Scripture says, he nevertheless desires you. He desires you, all of you, 
body, mind, soul, all of who you are, he desires that. Isn't that amazing? You know, we like to be appreciated, don't we? we I mean, we like to feel that we're wanted. We, we, we like to feel that, that we're desirable. Well, you're going to find the one who perfectly desires you only in God. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, as a holy sacrifice. A holy God deserves a holy sacrifice, doesn't he? You have no right to offer him anything that is unholy. Back scripture, the Old Testament is replete with God rejecting unholy sacrifices. But how is your offering yourself a holy sacrifice? I mean, really, you're sinners, right? Is he expecting you to somehow clean yourself up? Make yourself holy before you give yourself to him? No. Not at all. Because the God who saves you, the God who awakens you to your sin and brings you to repentance and faith in him, he makes you holy. He looks at you clothed in the righteousness of God and he says, here is my holy bride. And he delights when you offer him yourself that living, holy sacrifice. And one more. My translation has acceptable to God. I much prefer here the word pleasing to God. As I said a few minutes ago, you know, God is, he, he desires you as his people. When he looks at your sacrifice of who you are, your laying down of your life, your picking up your cross and following him, when he looks at your living sacrifice and sees that it is a holy sacrifice made because of your union with Christ and in Christ, he is pleased. He is pleased. Again, we like to please people that are significant in our lives, don't we? But of course, we found out so many times, people are really hard to please. <laughs> If you live for pleasing other people, you're, you're in for a rough ride. But God says, when you offer yourself to me as a living sacrifice, holy because of your faith in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of your sins, I am pleased. I am pleased. And no, no suffering, no heartache, no giving up of anything in Jesus' name, no sacrifice, no persecution will seem like anything at all when you stand in his presence and know that he is pleased with you. And at the end of verse 1, Paul summarizes this sacrifice in a slightly different way, doesn't he? This sacrifice that you're making, this living, holy, pleasing sacrifice, 
is your spiritual worship. My translation has your spiritual worship. Actually, the, you can legitimately translate that as your reasonable service. The word sort of has a double duty there. But both apply, don't they? You're living from day to day, living out your life in obedience to God, on the job, at home, at school, wherever it is, you're doing that is a spiritual exercise. Right? Your spiritual worship is not just what happens when you're here for an hour on Sunday. Your real spiritual worship extends all the way through the rest of your life. That's what Paul's saying here. You can say of anything that you do, for the glory of God, it is divine service. I don't care whether you're cleaning toilets or baling hay or pouring concrete or studying for school, serving someone in your home, doing the dishes. Whatever you do in all of life, if it's done for the glory of God in obedience to his will, if you're living out as best you can his calling for you at your age, at your place, and your time, that's a spiritual worship. And it's also eminently reasonable, isn't it? What could make more sense than for you to live this way? God has given you everything. He's given you physical life. You've been born again. He's given you spiritual life. Every good thing that you enjoy in this earthly realm comes from him. Doesn't it make sense? Isn't it eminently reasonable for you to give to him yourself? That's what's going to make your life meaningful. To live... For yourself is stupid. <laughs> it's foolishness. It's a waste. How many people get to the end of their lives and they say, well, is that it? Is that all it was? Boy, I was really hoping for more. You, as the people of God, have the opportunity to live lives that are full of meaning and purpose, even in the midst of trial and difficulty, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of sorrow. Your life has meaning because you're offering it to God, and he imparts meaning to you and to what you do in his name. We have every reason to be obedient here, don't we? Even though he hasn't given in terms of a command, boy, doesn't this pull at your heart? Don't you, don't you find yourself saying, I really want to do this. I, I really want to experience what Paul's talking about here. This, this is the truth that changed his life. I, I want it to be changing my life as well. And so he goes on to give us some concrete ways to do that. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Uh, the word world there is, is this age, this time, this earthly existence. Don't 
let the world squeeze you into its mold. Everyone around you, outside of the will of God, is seeking to shape you, to cause you to conform to their expectations. Don't be conformed by this present age. Don't let the culture around you shape you, shape your ideas, shape your desires. It's trying to do that all the time, especially in a consumer society like ours. Culture around you is trying to get you to define yourself by what you consume, by what you buy, by what you possess, by what you eat. Resist that. Resist that. Don't be conformed to this present age. But notice he doesn't say, in contrast, be conformed to this new image. You catch that? He says, don't be conformed by this present age, but he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to give you here, here's what you should conform yourself to. He doesn't do that. Don't look to live the Christian life through keeping some set of rules. Following Christ is not an act of conformity, even a conformity to good things. The Pharisees were good people. They were, they were, they were upstanding people. They were the salt of the earth. They were conforming to an image. They dressed right. They, they ate the right foods. They worshipped at the right times. They memorized the Bible. They were conforming to an earthly image. God does not want that for you. He does not want you to be a conformist. He wants you instead to be transformed. Be transformed. Silas would recognize the Greek word here because it's the word from which we get metamorphosis. If you want to know about caterpillars turning into butterflies, talk to Silas. Be transformed. Be transformed. Transformation happens from the inside out, doesn't it? Be transformed. Now notice this is, <clears throat> this is a passive verb, isn't it? Be transformed. So this is not something you generate in your own strength. This is going to be a transformation that God affects in you. Okay, and he's going to get to more about how that happens, but, but just keep that in mind. The, the Christian life is not something you live in your own strength or your own power. You're, you're going to run out of power tomorrow. If you're living in your own strength, you're not going to make it through the week. Be transformed. The transformer, obviously, is God. Be transformed. How does God bring that about? By the renewal of your mind. You need a new mind. You need a new way of thinking. Get rid of the old way of thinking. You need a new mind. You need the mind of Christ. The goal 
of this renewal process, see the rest of verse 2 there, is that by testing, by proving, by, by process of recognizing what is genuine, what is real, that's the word there, you may discern, you may know what is the will of God. As a believer, you want to know the will of God, right? Be careful that you don't take your old way of thinking, and perhaps even without being real conscious of it, you make your will into God's will. Watch out for that. You need a new mind. You need to have your mind renewed in order to discern the will of God. What is that will of God? Quickly, three adjectives he gives us here. It's good. The will of God for you is good. You do not need to worry in surrendering to the will of God whether or not it's going to be good for you. It's going to be good for you. He guarantees it. It's going to be good. It's going to be acceptable. That's that word pleasing again. God's will for you is going to be pleasing. That doesn't mean it's going to be happy all the time. It doesn't mean it's, there's not going to be grief, mourning. There's not going to be sadness. But it means that ultimately it is that which will bring you the most pleasure in an eternal sense. In fact, he goes on to say, it is perfect. The word there is associated with ends, okay? It leads to the perfect goal for you. So with confidence, look for the will of God for you. Do it with confidence because you know it's good, you know it's pleasing, you know it's perfect. He's going to give us a couple of real practical ways to do that. And here, now it may not be quite as comfortable for you to hear this next verse. For by the grace given to me, he used an expression there that we're going to pick up on in verse, five, verse 6, uh, but I'll just point that out. The grace given me, literally gift given me, that could be translated. So on the basis of what God has given me, God's given me gifts, Paul knows, Paul knows he's been given gifts, and so he's saying on the basis of what God has called me to do, on the basis of his gifting of me, I'm telling you this. Okay, so when he says, I say to every one of you, this is God's word speaking through Paul, right? So God says to you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. In your sinful nature, you're biased toward thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. That's just, that's just the facts. You think people ought to treat you better than they do? You think there's a lot of people you're smarter than? Sometimes, God forbid, you think you're a lot holier than other people. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Get some humility. Remember that lesson from Matthew 18? Better get that humility because you won't be in the kingdom without it. Don't think of yourself more highly 
than you ought. Now, on the other hand, he doesn't say, so just think badly of yourself all the time. That's, that's not the option he gives, is it? Look at, look at what he says next. Okay, don't think more highly than you ought to think. He uses the word, the root word here for think four times in just two lines. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. <laughs> Literally, the Greek there, by the way, is hyperthink. <laughs> Don't think highly of yourself more than you ought to, but think with, and my translation has sober judgment, but he uses the root word for think there again. Think rightly. Think with your right mind. This is the word that's used when, it, when you say that somebody's not insane, okay? The, the demon-possessed man who was insane, they, they, after Jesus healed him, he was in his right mind, okay? Get in your right mind. Think rightly about yourself. How do you think about yourself? Do you think about yourself the way God thinks about you? That's what's in view here. Make sure you think of yourself the way God thinks of you. So this means you'll acknowledge your sin, won't it? Because he knows it's there. Your selfishness self-centeredness. But think of him the way he thinks of you as not only a sinner, but as one whom he has saved. One for whom he gave the life of his own dear son. Do you think of yourself the way God thinks of you? you'll find yourself humbled by his love and mercy. You're going to come to that, Paul goes on to say, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God has given you faith. I pray that he has given you the gift of faith, that you've come to that point of repentance and acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. If, if, if that's happened, if you have faith in him, that's a gift of him. But you're going to be at different levels. Okay. There's a measure of faith that God assigns to you as a believer. You may be frustrated at those times. You may, you may wish you had more faith. You may envy the faith of somebody else. Uh, don't go there. Don't go there. God has given you faith. Then act in that faith. Don't try to act in somebody else's faith. Don't criticize somebody else's, what you think is a lack of faith. You, do, you don't know where they're at. You don't know what burdens they may be carrying, what trials they may be going through. You, you don't know how crushed they may feel in their own spirit. Don't look at other people. Just be faithful with the faith that God has given to you. And now we come really to main point I want you to hear. 
Beginning of verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. If you've been transformed, or if you're in the process of being transformed, I should say, that's a present verb, so it implies a continual action. If you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind, if you're learning to think of yourself the right way, as God thinks of you, if you're walking in the faith that he has given to you, you're ready for this. You're part of a body. This is not a Lone Ranger operation. You're part of a body. If you are united with Christ by faith, and another person is united with Christ by faith, then you together are united in Christ, right? And that connection is stronger than any merely earthly connection there could be. It's not biological, it's not geographic, it's not social, it's not based on language. It is a spiritual unity that God supernaturally brings out about when he, when he unites you by faith with Christ. You are united with other people. Paul wants you to take that seriously. You're one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Because you're one with Christ, you're connected to other people. And how's that worked out? It's worked out right here in this church, in this local congregation. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Remember that expression earlier, the grace given to me? Paul says, I'm not the only one that's been given grace. I'm not the only one that's been given gifts. In fact, every believer has been given spiritual gifts. He doesn't say, now those of you who are gifted, use them. No, he's, he says, you've all got them. You're all gifted. You're all gifted for the end of building up the body of Christ. Someone in this congregation needs your gift. They, they may be suffering loss right now because you're not using your gift. They may be stumbling in your walk, in their walk, because you're not using your gift. You've been given gifts as an act of God's grace. So give them to other people. Use them to benefit other people. That's why he's given you these. And he gives us some examples here. And, and this isn't exhaustive, okay? He's not saying, now these are the gifts. Everyone has one of these. I think New Testament, we can argue, uh, is quite open-ended in terms of the way it views gifts. You can come up with around 20 or so that are named, but that doesn't even that doesn't catalog all of them. Gifts are probably just about as varied as people are, okay? So you've been gifted in some ways. He gives us some examples here. He mentions prophecy. Probably that's to be interpreted in the sense of preaching. I think in a sense, Paul himself is using that gift 
The prophets are the ones who proclaim God's word, who, who teach God's people, who call people to obey God's word. Perhaps that's your calling. But it could be serving. Serving, we, we, we don't think much about that being a gift, right? I mean, waiting on people can be a gift. Serving people. Better believe it. I can think back to times in my life when my heart was nourished by someone serving me. I was in a place of need, and they served me. Without making a big deal out of it, they just did it. And I remember that now. Teaching. If you have the gift of teaching, teach. If you have the gift of exhorting, exhort. Now, that's not a word we use much. But it's actually the root, same root, as the verb that we saw Paul use at the very beginning of the chapter, implore. It's a word that, that literally translated means to come alongside someone. It's used actually in reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit to, believer, to believers. He is the paraclete. He's the one who comes alongside us. Can you come alongside somebody? Can you be there for somebody? They may not need to hear anything from you. They certainly probably don't need a lecture from you. <laughs> Can you be with them? Can you be one who comes alongside? Can you be one like Paul who says, you know, I implore you, hear what I'm saying. I really have your best interest at heart. Can I help you with this? Can I bear this burden with you? Can I encourage you in some way? That's what's in mind here. Giving, leading, acts of mercy gives those as examples too. And notice the manner in which these are to be exercised, because we really could apply this to all these gifts, I think. Find out what your gift is. God has, God has equipped you in some way. Maybe it's to, to be a giver. I've mentioned before to use a congregation, elderly farm couple that I knew growing up, Burton Ethel Adler. Boy, they had the gift of giving. They spent next to nothing on themselves. They didn't have indoor plumbing until the 70s. But they gave literally tens of thousands of dollars to the work of the Lord. They had the gift of giving, and very few people knew it. That's a gift. Leading is a gift. If God's given you the ability to be a leader, to be one who, who influences the people around them, one who can direct them, one who can manage them, then do that. If, 
There are some people that are just gifted with mercy, aren't there? But whatever your gift is, do it the way that Paul describes it here at the end of our passage. Generously, with zeal, enthusiastically, we could say, cheerfully. Find your gift. And be lavish, generous in using that gift to build up the church. Be zealous. Be enthusiastic about it. Don't sit around waiting for somebody to drag it out of you. Be zealous. Be enthusiastic. God's giving you this gift. Be glad. Be thankful. Use it. And with cheerfulness. Please don't use your gift with a long face, letting all of us know how much it's costing you. <laughs> Be cheerful about it. Be- because you know how wonderful an opportunity it is to build up the body of Christ. It's a service to Christ himself, isn't it? And you're using your gift to serve others in the body of Christ you're serving your Lord. Boy, what, what should make us happier than that? We're a church that believes in congregationalism. We're a church that doesn't have a hierarchy. We appeal to one another, as Paul's appealing to us here in this passage. But it is in t- it is absolutely vital that we learn to use gifts to build one another up. Help one another grow spiritually. Help our church grow in the image of Christ. He has given you gifts. And it cost him to do that. It cost him his life. If he has brought you to faith in him and gifted you, remember, it cost him everything. You're using your gift then as an act of worship to the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's not easy for us to uh, think about giftedness sometimes. Some of us are very uh, self-conscious about even thinking about being gifted. Some of us haven't figured out what our gifts are yet. Some of us maybe have misused our gifts in the past. Need to repent of that. Wherever we're at, Lord, in this process, uh, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through one another, uh, to, to discover and use our gifts for the building up of your people. And we will certainly give you 
All the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.